Let's pray together. You know, I don't know if when that song was written that the author of it was in Psalm 138, but they certainly could have been, where David says near the conclusion of that psalm, though I walk in the midst of trouble, trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Then here's David's assurance, and it ought to be ours as well this morning. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. For your love and kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Father, thank you for the assurance in your word, and that's certainly not the only place we're told that though we do walk in the midst of trouble, and we do, Father, even when we, as we already read, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that the Lord our shepherd not only leads us, he never leaves us or forsakes us. Father, we thank you for the assurance of your presence with us at all times, that Jesus said it over and over again. He said it emphatically. Father, he gave us his word. You gave us your word, that never will you leave us, never will you forsake us. You are with us at all times, on our best day and on our most difficult one, and on all the ordinary days that come in between. Father, we claim that assurance this morning that that the Lord God, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Shepherd, is here with us right now. And ready, Father, whether the, the sermon strikes us in a particular place or not today, Father, that whatever we're about to hear through the preaching of your word, he intends to minister to every heart in the room. Father, we do, we remember this morning, as we oftentimes say here, that nobody walked in the doors by accident today. Everybody's here for a reason. The reasons are different and our needs vary, but the answer is always one and the same. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will enable us, if we have not done so already, to rest our souls in you alone. To lay down our burdens, to repent of our lesser loves, to push aside the distraction and look not to a preacher speaking words, but look to a Savior who died and rose in our place. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that that is the way you speak to us through your living word. And we pray now that as we open it and look at it together, that not I, but that you, through your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. Father, we ask that you'd guide us in truth this morning because we need to hear words of truth. We ask that you'd guard us from error and misunderstanding because we're fallible and we go astray so easily. Father, I pray you'd deliver us and release us from the baggage we carried in, the distractions of the week behind us or the burdens of the week ahead. And in these precious few moments together, we pray as always that you'd help us to see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we truly see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And when we leave in a little while, Father, help us to do it relieved and rejoicing, not just because we came to church, got through another Sunday and checked it off our list, but that we met with Jesus, sat at his feet, and let him lead and speak to us, Lord, as only you can do. We love you, Lord. We ask that all that would be done would be to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose powerful name we pray and all God's people said together, amen, amen. Have a seat. Again, good morning. As you're taking your seats, as always, let's let the boys and girls scoop for Children's Church. As they make their way out of the room, I want you to make your way into your Bible, and I want you actually this morning to go to two places, and that's why I'm getting right to it this morning. Of course, as always, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. So first of all, find your way to Mark chapter 6. And then when you found Mark chapter 6, I want you to bookmark that. I want you to, uh, to hold your place there. But then I want you to go back in your Bible to a passage, a very familiar passage already read for us this morning, the 23rd Psalm. 
Find Mark chapter 6 and bookmark it, and then go back to and open your Bible and keep it open to the 23rd Psalm because we're going to start there and then we're going to use that as a launching point to get into our next look at the Gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus Christ. And as you're doing that, as you're finding those couple of places, let me just say this is going to be our last time in Mark for a few weeks as, of course, we are uh, very, very quickly, much more quickly than I would like, approaching Easter, approaching Holy Week. And that really begins next Sunday. And I just want to, I want to throw in a little word without going through all the details of Holy Week. We do have a lot going on. On. I'm very, very excited about it, even though I'm not anywhere close to ready for it. Uh, but but the, the part I'm most excited about is next Sunday. Next Sunday, is, as always, on Palm Sunday is Baptism Sunday. And I want you to know we've got 13 people going to be baptized next Sunday. And I'm super fired up about that. Each one has a salvation story to tell. And, and what I want to encourage you to do, and this may stretch us a little bit, um, we don't dunk people twice here just for the sake of those who come to one service or the other. So I would encourage you, if at all possible, to be here for both services next Sunday morning. Um, that may sound like a shameless plug. If you've been here for Baptism Sunday, you know it's nothing of the sort, that it's worth being here for both. We're going to have a few people baptized in the first service, a number of others in the second service, and I really want you to hear all their stories. So if at all possible, join us next Sunday. Be praying for those people, even if you don't know who they are, known by name. Just pray that they'll be ready, and I know that God is going to be glorified. It really is, as I often say, the very best Sunday of the year, because we hear the gospel through the stories of those who have met Jesus in a personal way, and you're not going to want to miss it. With that said, we're going to get to God's Word this morning, right here as we continue our study following the Son through the Gospel of Mark. And as I said, we're going to get to Mark's Gospel in a moment, but earlier in this morning service, in fact, just a few minutes ago, we read, or we had read for us, Psalm 23. Now, there's a lot of memorable lines in Psalm 23, but the one for just a moment as we begin that I want you to zero your attention in on is the first line of verse 3, where David, King David, Shepherd David, the author of this psalm, says the following, He, the Lord, restores my soul. He restores my soul. And while... My hunches, especially those of you who grew up going to Sunday school or Awana Club or maybe you've just been around the church a while, have probably memorized those words before. Many of us have committed the 23rd Psalm to memory. Even if you haven't, you've seen it and heard it before. You know, I wonder how many of us have ever, myself included until just recently, ever really truly contemplated the meaning of that statement, He, the Lord, restores my soul. Because the Hebrew word that David uses there for restore means to turn back. It means to return something to a prior condition. It's David's way of saying, hey, once upon a time, things, in this case, my soul, my inner person, was one way, but lately not so much. Lately, something has changed. In other words, what David is suggesting here by saying the Lord restores my soul, he's suggesting that from time to time, something inside me gets out of whack. And you know what I mean. Your soul gets out of kilter, out of balance, it unravels. And, and the reason David says that is because far from, and I think this is sort of the, probably the general assumption about the 23rd Psalm, is that the 23rd Psalm, everybody likes it so much because it's sort of this pie in the sky, rainbows and sunshine, poem of tranquility that just ushers us off to sleep and, and it's so beautiful and sweet. It's nothing of the sort. Can I tell you that? It's nothing of the sort. In fact, I believe that far from being a poem of utter tranquility, although it leads us to that place, 
I believe that the 23rd Psalm is an utterly, if indirectly, realistic appraisal of life on our planet. Look at it with me. I'm just going to walk you through it real quick. Watch this. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Why? Because I want stuff all the time, right? Wants, needs, burdens, shortcomings. I want stuff. That's why David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Why? Because by myself I won't do it. He leads me beside quiet waters. Why? Because I'll go other places given the choice every single time. He guides me, verse 3, in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Why? Because I like paths of unrighteousness for my own name's sake. That's where I want to go. Maybe you do too. Even though I walk, verse 4, through the valley of the shadow of death, because we all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, you're with me, your rod and staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my who? Why? Because we have enemies, literal and, and, and spiritual enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and oh, am I looking forward to that day, because life down here is really, really hard. That's what I mean when I say that Psalm 23, if indirectly, is still an utterly realistic appraisal of what your life and my life are like on this planet. And again, what David says in verse 3 is that the Lord restores or turns back our souls because everything else in this life, on this planet, seeks to unravel it and usually does. But here's the thing. While we know that God is able to restore our souls. Amen? And, and, and we want and we recognize the need for God to restore our souls. Amen? I wonder, here's what I'm wondering, how often, if ever, have any of us truly contemplated or considered how he does so? What does it take for God to restore my soul? It's not the kind of thing you can define, but we all know when our soul's out of whack. We all know when life is, spiritually speaking, out of balance. And how do we get back to that place? What does God do? Well, that's what this morning's passage in Mark's gospel, you can turn there now, Mark chapter 6. That's what this morning's passage in Mark's gospel is all about. The way in which, or some of the ways in which, Jesus Christ restores our souls. But before I read it to you, and it's just three verses, but before I read it to you, I want to remind you what's been going on. Context, as always, is king when we're studying the Bible. And and if you have not been here with us the past several weeks, or even if you have, but perhaps have forgotten, here's what Jesus and his disciples have been up against and going through over the past, I don't know, maybe couple of weeks. Uh, We can go back as far as the night in which he calmed the storm. Remember, they're they're taking the boat across Lake Galilee. A storm comes up. The literal meaning of the word is earthquake. It's a hurricane-force storm. Jesus calms it in the middle of the night, takes them to the other side of Lake Galilee. Immediately after that, here's the sequence of events. They see Jesus, once they come ashore, exercise an unclean spirit out of a demon-possessed man. He then immediately goes from there and heals a woman who had a 12-year hemorrhage. After that, he goes to a house of a man named Jairus raises his 12-year-old daughter from the dead. He then, after all of that, went back to his hometown of Nazareth, got up to preach on the Sabbath in the synagogue in his hometown and got run out, got rejected by his own family and townspeople. After that, this is what we've seen most recently, he then began to send his disciples out. 
two by two to surrounding villages and towns saying, go do the same works of ministry that you have been watching me do. But during that time, this is what we saw last Sunday, as they were out doing those works of ministry, word reached them somehow of John the Baptist's death, that King Herod had, had beheaded him, and, and now John's gone. And, and what I'm saying to you is it's on the tail end of all of that ministry, and all of that activity, and in some cases, all of that heartache and turmoil and challenge. And, and right before, this is what we'll see the next time we're together in Mark's gospel, right before launching into another season of more of the same, here's what happened. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 32. Look at your Bible. This is what it says. It says the apostles, that's the 12. Apostles simply means sent ones. They were sent out. The apostles gathered together with Jesus. And they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he, Jesus, said to them, the twelve, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they, the disciples, didn't even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now that's just three verses. The, the span of time those three verses covers, my best guess is a couple of hours. At most, maybe three, maybe four if we really want to push it. But in those three verses, which cover the span of just a, a few, a couple, precious short hours, what we see in those three verses, I believe, are three profound ways. I think also surprising ones. But certainly profound ways in which Jesus ministers to his people. Three ways that Jesus works to restore our souls. Whose soul needs a little restoration this morning? Anybody besides me? There are three ways. There are certainly more, but in this passage, there are three that Jesus does by example. Three ways he ministers to us. The first one is this. This might be the most surprising of the three. Because what I see here happening in verse 30, the way in which Jesus was restoring or renewing the souls of his disciples is, was by number one, celebrating their successes. The first thing we see Jesus do in this story is celebrate the successes of his disciples. Because again, here's what verse 30 said. It said, the apostles, the twelve, gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And guess what? what? We don't have to wonder what they told him. We don't have to guess at what that conversation included. Go back up to verse 7 in the same chapter, and it tells us. It says in verse 7 that when Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, this is what they're returning from now in verse 30, it says, watch this, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. They went out and cast out demons. Go down to verse 12. It says, so they went out at Jesus' instruction, and they preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons. They were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. I don't know about you. That sounds like a really big deal to me. That sounds like really amazing, fantastic stuff. And in my mind's eye this week, I've been trying to imagine how animated, maybe even emotional, that scene must have been. As these 12 guys, remember, just ordinary dudes, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, what are just guys that Jesus picked for himself. As they begin to report to Jesus, we went out and did the same things we've been watching you do for a year. And, and telling the stories, and recounting the blessings. Can you imagine what it would have been like for these guys to say to Jesus, Jesus, we went out, we saw blind eyes opened. You weren't even there. We were just there. And, and we saw broken and withered limbs restored. 
We saw fevers removed. We saw, we saw sick people, lame people get up and walk. We saw demons cast out. We preached the gospel. People repented. Jesus, we're just ordinary guys, but this is what happened when you sent us out. All the while knowing, of course, that he's the one empowering them to do it. But here's my question. That being the case, that being what we are told happened in verse 30, can I ask you something? Why would Jesus in that moment have done anything other than celebrate with his disciples? Rejoice with them at what had been done. Maybe here's a better question. Why wouldn't he do the same for you and me? Why wouldn't Jesus rejoice with you when you serve, faithfully serve him. Because praise God, despite everything we looked at last Sunday in the story of John the Baptist, last Sunday's message, if you were not here, was all about the cost of discipleship. That sometimes it requires sacrifice and sometimes it involves pain. But praise God, and I mean it, praise God, it ain't always that way. Following the Son is not always trial and tribulation. Sometimes, maybe more often than we think, God gives you and me the blessing. Of, of in our serving, and sometimes in very ordinary ways, in, in serving to see lives changed, to see a soul saved, to see a broken heart comforted, to see a wrecked heart encouraged, to see a sick person get well, to see someone who's lost hope restored, to see a broken marriage healed, to see a wayward child restored. Anybody ever seen any of this stuff? You have. If you've been following Jesus very long, you certainly have. He helps us serve in ways that make a difference. And here's my point. When that happens, when Jesus gives you, as a follower of him, the opportunity to serve him in a way that that makes a difference, you know what the first thing we ought to do is we ought to run to him and celebrate the success with him every bit as quickly as we run to him when we're in trouble. We always know to run to Jesus when we're in trouble. We often forget to run to Jesus when there's a blessing. And celebrate with him. Because I believe with all my heart, Jesus celebrates with us. One of the most poignant, one of the most memorable things in, in Oswald Chambers' daily devotional, my utmost for his highest, I've been reading it for years, and, and one of the statements he makes that has stuck with me the longest is this. He asks the question, listen to what he says. Chambers says, what is the sign of a true friend? That he tells you his secret sorrows? No. The mark of a true friend is that he, he or she tells you their secret joys. He continues, he says, many will confide in you their sorrows. You know that's true. Give anybody five minutes. Say, how's it going? They'll give you five minutes of how it's going wrong. You would not believe the week I've had. Give me 10 minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll fill it with 10. Anybody can do that. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that's what we do. But Chambers says, the last mark of intimacy in any relationship is the confiding of secret joys. And that is, here's my point, that's precisely what Jesus and his disciples are doing here. They're sharing the joy of successful ministry. They're calling it a success because lives were changed for Christ. And here's what I think. I think this morning, before I give you point number two, we ought to stop and do the same. In fact, here's what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon as we move through it. And we've done this before. If you're a guest here, you haven't maybe seen this before, but just quietly, just where we're sitting, I'm going to give you, I've got three ways Jesus works to restore, to minister to our souls. And rather than wait for me to give you one blanket prayer at the end of it, I'm going to pause in just a moment and invite you just in the quietness of your own heart. You can stay seated. You can bow your head. I don't care if you want to raise your hands in gratitude. 
But just to respond to that, and here's what I specifically mean. Think about your week. Maybe it was a good one, maybe it wasn't. Where did you see God at work? Maybe it's something small, maybe it's something great. Slow down for 30 seconds and just think, where did I see God at work this week? How did he, how did he do, where did I serve, where was I faithful to him and I saw him work? Maybe it's just a glimpse, maybe it was something big. But if we're paying attention, God's at work all the time. He is always, the scripture says, at work, in us, among us, through us. Where did God do something good this week? Where did he show up? And here's what I want to invite you to do. And I'm going to throw a prompt up on the screen if it's just, and this is silent. We're not going to pray this out loud unless you just want to whisper where you're sitting. That's fine. Because it's not about everybody else hearing about these things, but it is about giving praise back to God. Lord Jesus, here's the prompt. Lord Jesus, I celebrate. I celebrate because this week I saw you do what? I want you to take 30 seconds. I'm just going to be quiet. We're all going to be quiet. For you to tell him and to celebrate with him where you saw him work 30 seconds just to talk to him. it's so easy for us to come and, and we should you tell us to to come to you with our burdens and our needs and God I know I so easily forget to come to you with my gratitude and thanksgiving but Father you do all the time even on our most difficult seasons you shine to your people glimmers of grace Father I thank you that if each one of us who knows you sits long enough and it really shouldn't even take that long we can say yeah I saw the Lord at work there I saw the Lord at work there. I saw a sign of life, a sign of hope, a sign of encouragement. Somebody came and encouraged me, and we just want to thank you. Father, thank you for this picture here of Jesus celebrating with his disciples the work that, that he himself was doing through them. Father, thank you that you do the same thing through us. Jesus himself told us before he left, he says, because I go to the Father, greater things than these you will do because the Holy Spirit has come. Father, thank you that in this room, for as many of us there are, there are at least that many blessings to celebrate, if not more. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first profound way this passage shows us Jesus ministers to us, he restores our souls, is I really believe, as we're being told here, he celebrates our successes. The second one is this. The second one is this, it's in verse 31, a second profound way Jesus ministers to us in all seasons of life is this, and this is a good one, he shows compassion for our weaknesses. Jesus restores our souls, he ministers to us by showing, demonstrating compassion for our weakness. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this. But if you've done any ministry at all, and, and that could be vocational, that means it's your job, you're a pastor or a missionary, or you do it as some, some part of your job, or, you, or volunteer, voluntary, whether it's vocation or voluntary, if you are involved and have been involved in any kind of ministry at all, you have noticed, I'm sure, along the way, that in the context of ministry, in the context of the church, there will always be somebody telling you you should do more. Have you noticed that? Always saying, there is more that you should do. You should give more. You should pray more. 
Uh, You should show up more. You should work more. You should serve more. You should read more. You should witness more. You should do more. And frankly, here's the thing. In some of our lives, frankly, that is exactly what we need to hear. Because we take our walk with Jesus far too passively. And, And we're happy to let others do things so that we can do what we want to do. But that being said, Sometimes, what many of us actually need to hear is stop. Do you know that? As followers of Jesus, what some of us sometimes need to be told is to stop. Or, as Jesus put it himself in verse 31, look at your Bible. He, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, remember again, all that they've been through together, he said this, come away by yourselves to a secluded place, and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going to the point that they didn't even have time to eat. Jesus said, stop. Jesus said, stop. Maybe you remember, if you've read your Bible, and if not, you need to know that in the very beginning, go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, you will find something if you're paying attention and looking for it, and it is this, that God wove rest into the very fabric of creation. God wove rest, the need for rest, the call to rest, the spiritual, I believe, the spiritual discipline of rest into our very being. You know how I know that? Because in six days, God made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and on the seventh day, you know it, God what? Rested. Six days, you shall do all your work and all your labor, and you, on the seventh day, you should rest. It's, and, and guess what? Here, God wove that into creation before anybody ever sinned. Do you know that? God wove the pattern, the observance of rest into the mix before we screwed anything up and then really, really needed to rest. So you got to do it. It's part of his design. It's been there from the beginning. And, and I can tell you firsthand, I can tell you story after story after story in my own life about what happens when we don't do that. We crash. We, even, even when we are doing everything we are doing for Jesus, we still crash. We still crash. And we crater and we suffer because of it. Because here's what Jesus knows, and, and we, off, we, we either don't know, or we refuse to admit, or sometimes we outright deny. You know what it is? We are weak. Say that with me. We are weak. We are weak. Those of you who attended this month's Fresh Encounter, first Wednesday of the month, 7 o'clock prayer room, you should be there. Those of you who weren't need to know this, that this month we prayed through Psalm 103, and in the middle of that psalm, Psalm 103, 14, it says this, no uncertain terms, he himself God knows our frame. He knows how we're composed. And he is mindful that we are but, who knows, dust. He is mindful that we are but dust. That does not mean we are insignificant, because to God we are not insignificant. It just means that we are weak. That we are not as strong as we want to think we are. And 
And you can hear a verse like that, and maybe you can be insulted. God thinks I'm dust. God doesn't think much of me. God, that, that's how he, but I think we should hear those words as an incredible declaration of blessing because most of us, many of us, never actually truly do stop and rest. We just trade one form of frenetic activity with another, right? This is how we live our lives. You think about it, and you know that it's true. Our Saturdays, our Sundays, our spring break vacations, and I'm not trying to ruin anybody's spring break vacation. I hope you had a really, really good one and had lots and lots of fun, but here's what I know. Most of us come back from Saturday and Sunday and spring break vacation and summer vacation, and wherever we go, we show back up Monday morning in the office, in the classroom, with our kids, more exhausted than when we left. We did not rest. We just burned ourselves out in a different way. Because you got to get it in while you can. And that's what we do. And it's not how we were designed. That's why here in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was busier than you, had a whole lot more responsibility on his shoulders than you ever have or will. You know what Jesus did in verse 31? He sanctified the call to rest. That means he made it holy. He made it holy. Listen again to what he said, verse 31. He, Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. You know what secluded means? It means desolate, isolated. It actually means lonely. Well, Jesus, there'll be a place to plug my phone in there, right? <laughs> no, there won't. And if there is, Jesus will rip it out of the wall. How many of us ever get to that desolate place where it's just me and Jesus? Where it's just us and him? For no other reason than to rest. See, in the moment... I submit to you with all my heart, that was the single most compassionate Jesus thing Jesus could do for his followers. The most profound way he could minister to them in this moment was not to insist they suck it up for one more day. He said, dial it back, shut it down, and rest. Because God said we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to do it. It's for us. For a little while, Jesus said, I want you to do nothing. I think there's a wonderful opportunity for prayer for there for us this morning. For a number of reasons. Some of us, it, it may be a cry for help because you're looking at your life and going, yeah, right. <laughs> I've got X number of little kids and I've got this job and I've got that and I've got... Okay, you need to, to ask God for that place, for that rest, to see that opportunity. But you know what some of us need to do? And this is hard and I had to do this this week too. Some of us need to repent because we think we're the exception to the rule. I don't need to rest. I can't rest. <laughs> I might miss something on Facebook, right? <laughs> something might happen, and I won't know about it, and something might occur, and I won't be there to fix it, and I won't be there to hold it all. You're not holding anything together anyway. Jesus is holding it all together. And what some of us need to do is we need to go before the Lord, and here's our prayer this morning, and we're going to do this for the next 30 seconds as needed. Maybe it's a cry for help to Lord say, Lord, I, I, I see this need. I just don't know where to find it. But let's throw that prompt up there. What some of us need to do is say, Lord Jesus, I repent of refusing to rest. From what? Trying to fix my kids? Trying to, trying to solve other people's problems? 
trying to keep my business going and afloat, trying to bail this situation out, repair that, clean up this, straighten up that. You don't need me. The Holy Spirit will take you where you need to go. But for 30 seconds, let's bow our heads and simply say, I plead with you as needed to repent and say, Lord, I, just, I refuse to rest here and I know it's wrong. And I want to come in your presence at this moment and have you restore my soul. Just do business with him on this theme of rest for a few moments. Father, because most of us, simply because we were raised in the Midwest, we were told that hard work is what matters most. That the harder we work, the more successful we'll be and the more respected we'll be, the more full our lives will be. And Lord, most of us, having bought into that, are just plain tired. And we've turned six days of labor into seven days of performance. The better I perform, the more people will like me and the more money I'll have and the more things I'll get to do and the more vacations I can take where I'm not going to rest either. And Father, there's nothing wrong with vacations and Saturdays and, and hard work except that sometimes we're so busy there is no time for you. Father, would you just press us in those places where we refuse where we feel indispensable where we're afraid that maybe we are indispensable where we've got to do it or no one else will. Would you help us to remember that, that in your word, it says Jesus is the one in whom all things hold together. And, and whatever we drop, he's going to catch. Father, thank you that Jesus cared so much about his disciples and cares so much about us that he called us to rest. Thank you that, that there are times, there should be a time every week where we don't have to apologize for saying no and saying stop. My God said so. Father, deal with us in that secret place of the heart and in that way too, restore our souls in Jesus' name. So Jesus says, or Mark shows us, that Jesus was demonstrating that the, the first way in this passage that he restores our souls is to celebrate our success, to say, hey, when there's faithful work, God, God gets excited. The second thing he shows us is that he is compassionate for our weakness. And, and then the third, and this is really the culmination of the other two, the third and final way that this passage shows us Jesus works to restore our souls is this. This is the best one. He invites us to commune with him. Jesus himself invites us. By commune, I don't mean the bread and the cup that we just took. I mean relationship. He invites us to commune, to personal relationship with him. And I really do think this is the best part of the story because I discovered something here. I was looking at this passage a couple of weeks ago, thinking ahead to this morning's message, and I discovered something I'd never seen there before, just by slowing down and sort of reading, reading the lines, but then reading between them. Because if you look at verses 31 and 32, here's Jesus's plan. Look at those two verses again. Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Why? Because there were so many people coming and going, they didn't even have time to grab a bite to eat. So they, verse 32, went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Guess what? I'm going to give you a sneak preview of the next time we're together in Mark chapter 6. It didn't happen. Didn't happen. 
Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says this, the people saw them going. Guess what? Here they come. And many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. You know how many got there? 5,000. You know how I know that? Because Jesus feeds them once they arrive. But Jesus said, let's go away and spend some time on the other side of the lake by ourselves. People said, not happening. The needs of ministry were right there waiting for them. So here's what I realized. The only time they got to be alone with Jesus was in the boat. And I think that was Jesus' design the whole time. I know what's waiting, but I'm going to get these guys with me alone in the boat. And I wonder how great must that have been? How great must it have been for those 12 guys just to spend a, an hour, two hours, maybe three, that maybe that's all it was, to spend that time alone with Jesus. And, and all week long, I've been looking at this passage, wishing that Mark had given us some little clue of what the conversation was like. What was it that Jesus and his disciples talked about when there were no sermons to preach, sick people to heal, needs to meet, meals to make, demands to, to answer, crowds pressing in? Did they laugh together? Did they sing together? Were they just quiet together? Alone in the boat with Jesus. And again, I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was doing because here's what Jesus understood about them and he understands it about you too, that before they could go out and continue to give and continue to serve, they had to get filled back up. Same goes for you. You cannot continue to give out and serve if you are not by Jesus being filled back up. And here's what I want you to think about. If Jesus' own disciples needed that, how much more do you and I? How much more do we? That's why whenever, and some of you know this, whenever I teach on prayer, whenever I lead in prayer, whenever I facilitate prayer, if I don't do it explicitly, believe me, it has happened behind the scenes and it is what is happening by implication. I will always make the distinction between seeking God's hand and seeking God's face. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, but for those of you who don't, here's what I mean. Seeking God's hand in prayer. It's a good thing we're told to do it. But that's going to God about our needs. The metaphor of seeking God's hand. Why? Because God's got stuff I need, right? <laughs> he needs to provide. He needs to help. He needs to heal. He needs to lead. He needs to direct. All that stuff. And we go to him. And the Bible tells us to do that, to come boldly before the throne of grace, to find uh, mercy and help in our time of need. We seek God's hand. You know what we forget to do? We forget to seek God's face. Face is a metaphor for relationship. Think about it. Those of you who are parents, you get tired of your kids only asking. If all your kids ever did was ask you for stuff and never just want to spend time with you, it's a bit of a drag. And we learn that as we go. But what do we want? We want the relationship. Your heavenly father's exactly the same way. He wants FaceTime with you. Where you just enjoy the fact that he's awesome, right? That he's good, that he loves you, that he is compassionate and merciful and gracious and all the rest. And the reason that distinction is so important is that if all we ever do is go to God's hand for stuff, we might never look to his face. And thus our needs may get met, but our souls will not be restored. But I'm convinced with all my heart that if we seek his face, we'll eventually get to his hand. I believe if we'll seek his face, he's happy to open up his hand. But he wants us to seek his face. And that's what's happening in the boat. And that's what this boat time was really all about. It was an invitation an opportunity to simply commune 
with Jesus. So here's my bottom line question this morning. Are you getting any boat time with Jesus? Are you getting any boat time in your life with Jesus? What do I mean? I mean regular. I'm going to say daily because I know that's how often I need it. But regular times of worshipful, prayerful, communion, renewal, is that in any way part of your life? If so, how's it going? And if not, what's the problem? What's in the way? Because again, remember the disciples, they're around Jesus 24-7, 365 for three years, and they needed it. I'm not. (laughs) I need it too, and so do you. Everybody, every believer, every follower of Jesus needs boat time. Time alone in the presence of Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're doing the math already. You're looking because you wrote it down in point number two. Aaron, you just said, you said in point number two, there's always people at church asking you, telling you you got to do more. And I did say that, didn't I? I did. But you didn't catch me because I'm not asking you to do something more. I'm pleading with you to do something else, to make a trade, to say no to some lesser things so that the greatest thing actually happens. A friend of mine often says, he says, I can can find out, I can tell you what's most important in your life, all I have to do is look at your calendar. Because you make time for what's important, and so do I. Where is it? Where I'm not asking you to do something more, I'm asking you to do something different, to look at the things in your life that eat at your time and that wear you out and that burn you down. And I'm here to tell you, there's a better way to spend the time. But you have to leave your phone in the other room. You have to. You have to turn off the TV. You have to. You have to say no to that urgent text that just has to, no, you don't. You don't have to respond. They will live without you. And I don't care if it's five minutes or 15 minutes or an hour. It doesn't matter, but start somewhere. It may be I'm going to read a psalm, say thank you, Jesus, and get on with my day. But I'm going to start and spend that time, boat time with Jesus. Because why did he create you? For a relationship with himself. That's why he made you. That's why he made me. He wants boat time. He really, really does. And you're never worse for having spent it with him. What I'm really asking you to do, pleading with you to do, is respond to Jesus' own invitation. He said it in Mark, or Matthew 6, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I, here's the paraphrase. I'll take care of all the details. Read Mark, Mark, Matthew 6 when you get home. Seek first my kingdom. Seek my face. I will handle all that stuff that you're worried about. I will. He promised. And so let's take 30 seconds to contemplate. Not what I'm saying, but what is the Spirit of the Lord saying to your heart in that way? And, and, and here's a way maybe you just need to pray about. We'll throw one more up here. We're going to do this. We're going to pray. I'll give you the big idea and we'll be done. But let's not let this slide by. Here it is. Lord Jesus, not just help me, compel me to take boat time with you this week. When? What? When I'm in my car? Just shut the radio off. When I wake up first thing in the morning, I'm just going to get up 15 minutes earlier. When I'm, when I'm on my way home, maybe it's before I go to bed. It doesn't matter. The time doesn't matter. And, and I'm not even sure that the process matters so much. You just get alone with him you got to have it. You can't function any other way and thrive with a restored soul. So for 30 seconds, I'm going to invite you just to quietly respond to him in prayer. And then we'll draw all this together. Let's just quiet our hearts one more time before him.
Well, Heavenly Father, for some of us, this really is a, a moment. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but I really believe it's a moment of decision, a critical moment of decision of whether we're going to make time for you amidst all the other things that the world tells us are so important. Father, we, we realize the longer we walk with you, the more we need, not the less, the more we need time with you, the more we need you to fill our bucket because it gets emptied out so fast. Father, I thank you that you're attentive to the hearts and the prayers that were just offered in this place of those of us knowing, maybe agreeing in our spirit, but wondering, Lord, how? I pray that you will compel each and every one of us to vote time with you this week so that, not to make the pastor happy, but so that Jesus can restore our souls and we can know the joy of walking with you even more closely in Jesus' name. And with all of that said, here's the big idea this morning really all comes down to this, and I think it's particularly relevant as we look to Holy Week and really what we need to be concentrating on above all else, and it's this, sometimes the best way to serve Jesus, you know what it is? To stop. Sometimes the best way we can serve Jesus is to stop, to stop everything else and give him our full attention and let him restore our souls. Father, once more we approach you. And I simply ask what I'd ask, what I ask every single Sunday, that you would take the things of truth that have been spoken here. Father, not the opinions, not the perspectives, not the illustrations, the truth. And apply them to our hearts, sink them deeply, hound us with them in your grace throughout the week, and cause all the other stuff that's a distraction to just melt away. So that, Father, as we go out of this place today, as we go back into a world that is going to seek to unravel our souls, we will be standing firm and resting in the safe, powerful, loving arms of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.